HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host today on Heritage Radio Network. And today, A Taste of the Past is proud to be sponsored by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market supports independent farms and small businesses in our communities. They carry super fresh produce in their departments. And this week, notably, from New York, they have yellow plums, sugar plums, red onions, and sour cherries. They have fresh produce from New Jersey as well and Connecticut. So visit Whole Foods Market and get the freshest produce. Today on A Taste of the Past, we're taking a a little trip into New York culinary history. And a lot of talk, of course, is about America finally coming of age, America food coming of age. And then you have to stop and think, well, what is American cuisine? What What is our cuisine? Who are we anyway? And of course, we all know that we, our food is a product of all of our relatives who came from wherever. Um, and the countries are endless and constantly evolve. We're constantly evolving. We constantly have um, new influences in our food markets and on our restaurants as well. And today I have with me Jane Ziegelman. And Jane is um, a... Researcher and and culinary historian, gastro historian. I heard that mentioned. That's a new one for me. I'm going to call myself a gastro historian from now on. <laughs> um, and has just written a book on nine, called "97 Orchard: An Edible History of Five Immigrant Families in Our New York ten, in in One New York Tenement." And 97. There have been other books written about 97 Orchard because it is the New York Tenement Museum. And uh, this one, of course, is of particular interest to A Taste of the Past because it's an edible history. Welcome, Jane. Thank you very much. Um, Jane, now you told me when I was talking to you about um, the book, and uh, you said that for you, the process of research was the most exciting yeah, thing, that- which it ordinarily is, right? But um, tell me a little bit about that. What, how, did you, how did you go about researching this? Sure. The first thing that you have to know about researching the Lower East Side is that Lower East Siders, these are the people who lived in the tenements on the Lower East Side, 
most of them immigrants, most of them quite poor, like poor people everywhere and working people everywhere, did not have the time or the inclination or the resources to document how they lived. Mm. Um, and in some cases, the education. That's true, too. Yeah. Um, this was both a, a problem and a challenge. Mm. And in the end, I think it led me to a more complex and interesting story. And I'll tell you why. Um, what I found is that I had to turn to outside sources, people who were not from the Lower East Side um, and for whom the Lower East Side was a really foreign environment. These were native New Yorkers from uptown. These were you know, the, the uh, reigning middle class and upper class of this city mm -hmm. um, in the mid-19th late 19th and early 20th centuries who went down to the Lower East Side on these kind of safaris <laughs> um, to explore this <laughs> immigrant wilderness. Um, and um, they, they came for all different reasons, but many of them documented what they saw. Um, but of course, um, inserting a lot of their own assumptions and sort of um, their own cultural truths into their right. into their. So writing. how did you filter out what was? Well, that's what became so interesting yeah. is the filtering, um, is sort of seeing this um, this neighborhood with a kind of double vision, seeing it as it was seen by the uptown New Yorker, mm -hmm. and then trying to sort of um, see through what they saw to the underlying story. Well, the, the museum, the Tenement Museum itself, does have some documentation of these, first of all, I have to say five families. You followed five different families from, from different backgrounds and different countries um, and the food they brought with them, the, the cooking they brought with them. So there is some documentation on some of these families, right? Yes, there's no. some, but let me... Let Again. Me, I, I can describe for you what it is. Um, there are photographs, that's one thing that the Lower East Sider did for herself or himself, is they took pictures. Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't, many of them didn't have cameras, but there were lots of photo studios on the Lower East Side. And you could be dirt poor, but you would still get your portrait taken. And when you got it taken, you looked damn nice. Yeah. <laughs> you put on your absolute best. And sometimes I can't imagine that these people were the, the poor working people that I know they were because they did look so good. They cleaned up real good. They cleaned <laughs> up good. But, you know, this was maybe uh, a, a very rare occasion. And maybe they even rented clothing for these, for these photographs. And, of course, they were set against these very sort of romantic backdrops. Mm -hmm. So it's a very skewed and um, particular picture of who these people were. Um, so that is one kind of documentation. Um, there are, in some cases, letters that were preserved by immigrants to their families back in Europe. These fascinating. Um, and there are actually a few quoted letters in 97 Orchard from 
Irish immigrants hmm. to their families back in Ireland. And for me, this was um, probably the most evocative sources that I worked with because you really hear their voices. Yeah. You hear someone talking, and that's um, very powerful. Um, there are also sort of more objective records, census records, can be quite interesting. They don't contain a lot of information on, you know, on each page, but when you put them together, they start to tell a story. And um, in terms of the census records, one of the really interesting lives that I charted was Lucas Glockner, yes. um, who was the the guy who built 97 Orchard, an immigrant himself, a German immigrant who came to New York in the 1840s um, as a tailor, sort of scraped together some money, bought some property, built a tenement. And um, and he actually lived in the building himself. So he wasn't um, sort of a slumlord of the time. Right. This was he was building for himself and people like him. And he knew what yeah, he knew what was needed. Well, that's when you talk about um, reading the letters and, and you said you were able to hear their voices. Correct. That's something you do so beautifully in the book in that you you take on their voice. You you write it from their perspective in a couple of instances. Mm-hmm. And that is it. That's an interesting thing you did, and obviously you must have been um, very moved by the letters to to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. How did you get to the food? How did you get to what they were, what they were making? Um, That's another. That's another challenge. Um, You know, of all the sort of parts of everyday life, the kitchen of this period was one of the least documented. It was sort of outside of. it was not part of the public world of the streets and the markets and the restaurants. Right. So in many cases, I had to look at what was going on in the streets and the restaurants and the markets and infer from that what must have been going on in the kitchens. So, for instance, there are great um, descriptions of the pushcart markets and of exactly what was sold at the markets and how much everything cost and the quantities that people bought in at that time, which was very um, something that was really sort of striking to uptown New Yorkers because the immigrants bought in such tiny quantities. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one way to sort of see inside the kitchen. Um, There are also wonderful descriptions of the immigrant restaurants that opened up in the mid-19th century, and many of them very humble places. Um, that give you a sense of what people were eating on an everyday basis. Um, so, and the, I mean, these restaurants were probably almost akin to boarding house food, ve- right? I mean, very much were, so. Right. I mean, some of them were hmm. boarding houses and lodging houses. Um, many of the immigrants who came over, and particularly the Italians, came without families. They came as bachelors and lived together in these all male communities. And um, uh, what they had in their, the the kind of food that they had in their um, all-Italian lodging and boarding houses has been recorded. So um, we we do have these sort of piecemeal pictures. Um, But then they were later. They they actually, the majority of those immigrants came much later than some of the early, the German, early Germans. And uh, that's true. Right. I mean, the Germans and the Irish were the first. They were sort of the trailblazers. 
Um, and the Italians really started coming in the 1880s, mm-hmm. um, and then s- sort of immigration peaked uh, shortly after 1900 in terms of the Italians. Um, but in many cases, the, the question of, or the problem, the question of documentation was the same. You sort of had to go to the same kinds of sources. And one of the really great sources were the daily papers. Hmm. Um, it seems that the Lower East Side, for, for a, a large, um, well, for, for many reporters, their beat was the Lower East Side. Um, the Lower East Side offered great copy. It was colorful. It was full of pathos and drama. Well, and the streets were always teeming with people. Right? That's right. So. I mean, there was so much to see and so much to describe. So um, it was a natural magnet for reporters. The stories kind of wrote themselves. Hmm. And um, there, that was, that was a, a gold mine yeah. uh, for me. Well, the cooking, and you, you document very well, or, or at least you describe very well in the book, um, the challenges that the the home cooks faced in mm-hmm. in making food, just feeding the family. I mean, these weren't cold water flats. These were flats that had cold water downstairs in the correct. basement, right? That's correct. Yeah, actually out in the, in the yards. Mm-hmm. They had a pump. At some point, um, indoor plumbing was installed in 97 Orchard, a tremendous luxury. <laughs> um, but that wasn't until the 20th century. I mean, we're talking 186. When did, when did Glockner... The, the building went up in 1863. 1863. Hmm. And so they would have to haul water up for cooking, washing, cleaning, anything, right? All these flights of stairs. I mean, yeah. I, the way I see it is that cooking at this period was, um, it was a form of athletics. <laughs> um, yeah, there was lots of hauling, hauling water up and down stairs, hauling coal, you know, fuel for the stove up and down stairs, not to mention groceries and children and anything else that you needed in your apartment. Women and w- women were sort of the bulk of that work fell to, yeah. to women and to girls. Well, it would be, I mean, obviously a very poor cuisine that they would, that they would cook, that they would reproduce, but they would capture the flavors of home, I would imagine. I mean, you go, when you, anyone, you travel... What's the first thing you sort of long for and mm-hmm. you miss? A taste of home. A taste of home, right? So these are what things they were trying to bring, and, and it was also familiar to them. It's what they knew how to cook. Yeah, I mean, it, there was both. This is what food was. Yeah. I mean, why would you cook anything else? <laughs> That's one. One part of the story. But the other part of the story is that um, they were far from home. They were far from family left behind family that they would most likely never see again. They were in an utterly alien environment um, where people were using a language they couldn't understand and living in these bizarre um, structures they had never seen before. Well, what could they find that was familiar? Well, food, dinner. You know, that was a kind of um, cultural bridge to their former lives. It was one very important source of continuity when so many other, amid so many other disruptions. Um, and I think it was very, very important as a kind of emotional or psychological grounding. Sure. Well, this is who I am. Okay, now I remember. Comfort food. <laughs> yes, the deepest kind of comfort. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk a little more about the individual families and the, and the varied ethnic foods that they did bring with them when we come back after a short break okay
Ziegelman, author of 97 Orchard, an edible history of five immigrant families in one New York tenement. And if you're in New York City, you can go down to the Lower East Side and visit 97 Orchard. It is a, a um, an, an existing museum, a quaint, I'm just a, a gem of a little museum. Yes, it is. Uh, people are expecting a, a lot of space, but remember, it's a tenement. They're in a small, you know, few small rooms and uh, very well put together. And Jane is going to be the director of the new culinary program that's going to start there in the near future. And, True. Uh, and I forgot to mention, too, that you run a program called Kids Cook. True, and, too. <laughs> yes, yes. So this is, there's a, a lot of, a lot of um, different factions that I think play into your interests when you were doing this book. But you chose five different families well and and they weren't the only ones who lived there but they Correct. and they lived there at different times but in that way you covered a lot of culinary ground that's true the um i covered sort of uh Ethnic ground, if yeah. you want to say, uh, but also in terms of time, because each each family lived there um, in the building during a different period. Different period of the waves of immigration, right? Correct. Yeah. So, as we were saying before, the Germans were were among the first, and um, the German family in this book are the Glockners. Um, they are followed by um, the Irish. Um, and the family represented here are the Moors, and of course they, they came over during or as a result of the potato, potato famine. Yeah. Um, there are also German Jews, and the family in the book are the Gumpertses, and they have a sort of very interesting personal story. Um, but it seems that many of these people did have very interesting personal stories. Mm-hmm. These were lives that were really... Um, punctuated by tragedy on a regular basis, but also by rebounds. So people were knocked down easily, and they came back up because they had to. And that's what you really see in a lot of these family stories. Um, And uh, finally, we have the Rogashevskys, who were Lithuanians, um, Jews, and the Balditsis, Sicilians. And they were among the last tenants to live in the building when it was finally condemned by the city of New York as a fire trap. It was shuttered. Um, All the tenants were evicted, but the ground floor was allowed to remain open as a commercial space. And it always did. Didn't it always have commercial space in it? Yes, it did. And that's 
very typical of a tenement. Mm -hmm. Sort of the entire building is sort of multifunctional. (laughs) There's no such thing as sort of separating out commerce and residence or eating and sleeping. All of these sort of activities overlap. That's part of that's part of what goes on in tenements. Well, we were talking during the break. We were talking about the the German influence that a, a lot of people don't aren't aware of, don't realize in that there were no restaurants, real restaurants per se in New York City, um, or actually in probably anywhere in America, until the Germans um, came and and brought their food for their compatriots to eat, and then it caught on like wildfire. They had their beer gardens, right? So it was... No, that's right. That was sort of one of the first um, important phases of the restaurant history of this city. Mm-hmm. Um the beer gardens were amazing places. First of all, they were huge. Um, you know, entire, the width of an entire block, sort of like um, airplane hangar right, size, right. but really nicely done up. And of course, they were called gardens because back in Germany, um, they were in gardens. Mm-hmm. People drank beer outdoors in these beautiful settings um, with, you know, fir trees and sunshine and other woodsy, you know, nice woodsy atmosphere. Well, in New York City, um, beautiful outdoor spaces were in very short supply. So these beer gardens were kind of done up to give you an atmosphere of of a relaxing day in the country um, with a burbling fountain, you know, somewhere on the premises. And there was always music in the beer gardens. And, of course, it was live music. So there was often a full orchestra somewhere up on a stage. And um, many times it seems they were all women orchestras. That oh, interesting. Was, that was a draw. <laughs> um, and um, these beer gardens were all up and down the Bowery. That was sort of the main um, entertainment district mm. of not only of the Lower East Side, but of the city. So they obviously served um, their bratwurst, their worstels and their sausages and things, Correct. things that, um, that from their homeland that they could reproduce here. Something in the book that that caught my attention, I sure. thought was so interesting, were the, um, after, you have to tell me that it, kraut cobbler, or? Yeah, what, that's exactly it. The, the, the German, kraut so the, the, oh, the kraut hobble? Hobbler. Hobbler. Now Which means shaver. Shaver. And I've right. seen the large, looks like a washboard almost, and they, these would be cabbage shredders, right? That's exactly right. They were um, something like a mandolin, but bigger, and made of a kind of wooden plank with a series of blades inset. And what you would do is sort of like using a mandolin, take your cabbage and sort of um, run it up and down the blades mm-hmm. to you know form these shreds. Um, and this crowd hobbler was an itinerant tradesperson who went door to door in the tenements during sauerkraut season, which was late autumn, um, shaving cabbages for tenement homemakers for a penny a head. And you wonder, well, how did he make money on a penny a head? Well, women um, would shave 30 to 40 cabbages at a time. Mm. So you would leave one apartment with 40 cents. Yeah. That, that wasn't bad. Um, for its time. 
And um, from this shaved cabbage, the women um, made their, their homemade sauerkraut, which was a process in itself. The shaving right. was just the beginning. Um, but this is one of these great sort oh, of... Um, what a wonderful time-saving. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. what a wonderful time-saving effort. I mean, if anyone has made sauerkraut, you know, that sh- you know, shredding the cabbage, is, that's, that's the messy part, you know? <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, this was, you know, the, the human Cuisinart um, that's of, right. of the day. <laughs> that's right. And then we got into um, uh, the um, Gumpertses and... Yes. Um, talk about that, the, the food that, that was um, prevalent in their existence that you write about. I would say that <clears throat> the one dish that really goes to the essence of German-Jewish cooking um, was the Sabbath fish dish. Mm. And, and Friday night was a night to eat fish. Um, everyone had their own way of doing the fish. Jews from here did it this way, from here did it that way. The Germans made a dish called carp sweet and sour, which came to be known by non-Jews as carp a la juif, you know, Jewish, <laughs> Jewish carp. Um, and it was in a, it was a whole carp sliced into steaks, um, left, you know, with the bone and the skin, simmered in vinegar, brown sugar, uh, you know, a slug of um, beer, and some ground ginger snaps and raisins. Mm. Um, and uh, that taste, that sweet and sour taste, I think was the defining flavor of this particular group. Wonderful. That sounds, I mean, sounds, it sounds like a good thing, an economical dish and as well as a tasty dish. That's yeah. exactly really right. Really great. Yeah. Um, so, and, and were there recipes, you do have recipes and or amounts at least down. So these recipes were documented somewhere along the line, I assume? There were cookbooks. Uh-huh. So that was the other that they brought with them. Um, Both um, some books were brought over. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, there's a cookbook. It's a 19th century German cookbook by Henrietta Davidus, Practical Cooking. Um, it was originally published in Germany in German. It was brought over uh, with German immigrants packed into their trunks, um, and eventually it was published in an American edition in English, adapted for the German-American homemaker. So there were many similar books that made their way over and then were translated into English and sort of uh, played with a little bit so to make it sort of, to have the book make more sense in this new cooking environment. There were also cookbooks published, written by immigrants in this country um, that really specifically reflect um, or let's say, let me put it this way, that really blend the two culinary cultures, hmm. wherever they were coming from, and then the culinary count- culture they encountered What was here. available to them here. What was available Of course, here. remembering, too, that these immigrants were, by and large, poor or escaping some, you know, some political yes. situation. They did not cook from books in their own countries, by and large. They were, these were, you know, from what we know, mostly they were, you know, recipes passed down from no, that's, that you know, is mother true. to daughter. And but there was, I mean, among some people, that's, that's more true for some groups than others. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that the German Jews um, were among the wealthier of the immigrant groups that came over, and there was a very strong tradition in 
German families for the German mama to write down her recipes and hand them to her daughter as a wedding gift. Mm-hmm. And um, that, so they did come over with some of these sort of handmade cookbooks and um, and German Jews in America continue that tradition. And there are some manuscripts um, of these very um, you know, fragile and wonderful old cookbooks that you can find in archives in New York. So there was some written do- documentation, but um, I guess that would be the exception. The, um, the rule was that girls watched their mothers, they helped their mothers, and they learned to, they cook, learned to cook, you know, by feel and by instinct, mm-hmm. just the way their mothers cooked. Oh. Interesting. Um, one thing that I that another tidbit that um, lots of lots of tidbits and lots of interesting facts in the book. Um, but you did mention the cuisine in New York at the time of the early the mm. earliest waves of immigration, which was not a very exciting cuisine. I mean, it was the New York was by and large English. <laughs> at that point, and it was kind of kind of a boring cuisine. Right, well, point. we're showing our own biases right now. Um, it's not my favorite cuisine. We it's, had a lot of oysters in the city. However. Okay, that's true. That was a, that was our high note. All I right. think. Um, yeah, it was roast beef and pudding and peas and um, pies and pies and pies. You yeah. mentioned pies. Well, that's right. Um, we immigrants, um, you know, we we called the we meaning us native born Americans. Mm-hmm called the Italians garlic eaters, but the immigrants called the Americans pie eaters. Pie eaters. And they could <laughs> not imagine what they were doing with these pies, breakfast, noon, and I mean, all day long, pies, pies, pies. And um, pies were actually a, um, a sweet and a savory, mm-hmm. um, and um, there was just entirely <laughs> too much pie. Interesting. Um, there... You you do talk about the Italians, um, and you just mentioned it before about the men living together in, in mm-hmm. barracks, if you will, mm-hmm. and cooking. Of course, then it traveled on to the twentieth and twenty first century. The men's social clubs, the Italian social clubs, men cooking. That's a, um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but you oh, you put something in there that it was a great recipe, something to try with all the extra tomatoes coming into season shortly. Hopefully, is that they knew they couldn't get the tomatoes that you know they'd have to cook what they could get and they wanted their tomato sauce they wanted their their pasta so they would make a paste of the tomatoes well i think what you're thinking of is yes it I was mean, the like pot- a bouillon cube you mentioned right? exactly <laughs> it was um a, a homemade bouillon cube so it was a base for soups they would take you know the, the tomato surplus um and this happened to uh, this recipe came from um, a bunch of Italian workers in Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So if they were doing it in Newark, let's they say. Were doing they it were here. doing it here. Um, they would pound the tomatoes, mix the crushed tomatoes with cornmeal and flour, um, you know, really get it into a kind of cement-like paste, and then form that paste into little cakes and put them on rooftops to dry. And, um, I mean, I just, everything about that recipe is is great. It sounds sounds like something I'd want to do today. It's so smart. I mean, it's really smart. Um, And that kind of ingenuity, I think, is what really impressed me about immigrant cooking, is taking a little, taking a few cheap ingredients, and through your your skill and your cooking smarts, 
transforming it into something really, really good. Right. Well, another thing that that impressed me about um, the book through your research, not only photographs and and documentation of of recipes and um, items sold in the market, but the you said well you said newspapers and they did wonderful sketches. Yeah. of the scenes of the street. And you have a wonderful, a lot of wonderful reproductions in the book of um, people sketching what must have been the scene on the street. And those alone are worth, you know, gazing at in the book, you know, for nothing yeah, else. The, the, I mean, first, the old photographs are amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you really look into the eyes of these people and sort of see who they were. Um, I mean, they're also great photos, you know, great photographic street scenes. But preceding... These photographic representations are these great illustrations. And uh, I don't know how they did it, but they really capture sort of the the street in motion. Right. And that's what really um, impressed me about them um, and filled with wonderful detail. And I think there's there's one, one of my favorite um, of these old illustrations was of the old... Fulton Market. Yes. Yeah, and it was yeah. the watermelon stand. And you could see, looking at the crowd, sort of how many different New York types might gather around a watermelon stand in whatever, 1886. Right. Um, so it's a real sort of snapshot of New York. Well, we are so fortunate in this country to have such riches of cultural diversity. And, and the food, and America's food, is certainly... Um, all the richer because of all the immigrants. You think they brought their breads and their sausages and their all their different pastries. And it's just it's a treat to read through and put it all together and make sense of this of this jigsaw puzzle of cultures that now we call American cuisine. And I thank you so much for writing this book and so much for being with us today on A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and I would like to again thank our sponsor, Whole Foods Market, and our executive producer, Jack Inslee, and our engineer, Nat Wiener. And I hope you join us again on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Network.com.